You're listening to the So What Podcast. I think one of the big So What applications of this whole series, the ever-present danger of accommodation, of taking the truth of God as it's given to us and accommodating it to the cultural expectations. What about the gospel cannot be accommodated? And that, I think, is such a temptation to and requires resisting to say. And we accept then, if you make that decision, you accept being foolish or scandalous based on who your audience is. Hello and welcome to another episode of the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly, Brad Mills, and Travis Buchanan. On this second of a two-part episode, the crew will continue their discussion on Apollinaris and Apollinarianism. Before we head over to our discussion, again, we'd just like to thank you for listening to So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at SoWhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for the SoWhat Podcast. Let's head over to our discussion. To return the conversation to Apollinaris and 4th century Christological heresies or ways of going wrong with understanding the two natures in the one person of the incarnate Christ, I just want to maybe just add some context to the the conversation and then we can talk about, I know uh, Brad wants to read some of Gregory Nanzianzen's uh, replies as a as a contemporary of Apollinaris, as he was combating this in the fourth century. And I think it'd be good also to read the words of the Nicene Creed, or excuse me, the uh, symbol of Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, which try to settle the language or officially endorse the language with which we should use to describe this. So I just want to say first that I appreciate Brad mentioning there was a mystery that we're dealing with here. Mm -hmm. It is a conundrum and something unique when we're talking about the incarnation of Christ, it's not something you're necessarily prepared to conceptualize because it's nothing that's ever been encountered in history or creation or even in the divine life prior to when in the fullness of time, uh, God became a man born of a woman born under the law, like Paul says in Galatians 4, to redeem those who are under the law. And so we want to talk about redemption too and its important answer to the Apollinarian heresy. So we're talking about holiness, or we were just in that digression, holiness of body, but H-O-L-Y, holy, but there is a holy W-H-O-L-L-Y that is, speaking of the Apollinarian heresy, is that Christ wasn't wholly human in that sense. But I want to say that the New Testament doesn't give us the language of the creeds. The New Testament 
gives us the mystery in forms like Colossians 1.19. For in him, speaking of Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Yeah. And then in the second chapter of Colossians, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So we get statements like that. We get statements like Hebrews chapter 4 and chapter 2, which Brad was referring to earlier. We get statements like, or we get scenes in the Gospels like Jesus praying in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. Well, how can this divine Son of God have a will that's different from the Father? Aren't they that needs to be conformed. one nature? Yeah. yeah. Um, how can there be any division there? Um, you know, and then we, we've talked in previous episodes of, you know, the confusion of, well, how can the Son of... You mentioned the wilderness, you know. Well, how can the Son of God be hungry or, or thirsty or tired? Post-New Testament, in these early Christian centuries, there's a need to then develop language to discuss this mystery. And there are a million ways to go wrong in this desert, and they become... Well, desert's maybe a, a bad way of, of thinking about orthodoxy, but um, there's if, if you're in the wilderness and you're in unexplored territory, there's a million ways to go wrong, and there's eventually one officially sanctioned way to then discuss these things, and that language gets put in the creeds. But you also have an apologetic concern because you have people like Apollinaris living in Hellenistic culture, inheriting Greek thought, and wanting to defend the Christian view to prospective converts, you know, to Greeks, who the gospel is foolishness to Greeks. And so there's a concern to work this out philosophically so that they don't think it's foolish, so that it's persuasive to them. And you have a Platonic understanding, and this is all coming around, you know, this is all going somewhere. You have a Platonic understanding that the soul is imprisoned in the body, that the flesh is denigrated and not divine. And so what Matt was referring to, you know, in a, in a Christian view of the, I am not my body. And, you know, thankfully it'll be eaten by worms someday and I'll be free of it forever. And that's not truly who I am. So I... In that context, in that Hellenistic context and desire to make the gospel persuasive to Greek thought and to not want to spurn the inheritance, the cultural inheritance of Plato and Greek philosophy, you could understand a concern that, well, yes, the flesh is wicked and we have scripture to support the fallenness of the, of the flesh. No follower of Plato is going to disagree with you there, so that's a contact point with culture and we can say, well... Yes, so Jesus takes on human flesh because it needs to be redeemed. But the soul is different in the Platonic understanding. The soul seeks to ascend to commune with the good, and the body is holding it back, and, and lower appetites in the body are holding you back from ascending for divine communion. And so you could see this Apollinarian view of, so we take the mind of God that is respected in Platonic thought, and we put it in a man of flesh, and that's the perfect union, you would think, of what mm -hmm. we would aspire to as human beings. And so we don't, you know, and it's, and it's taking an intellectual Greek philosophical understanding of the incarnation, because I think that is, is trying to be answered. And our problem is that we need right knowledge. We need to have our thinking corrected. And so we have the divine mind now and incarnate in a, in a human body. And, and that is kind of a, a noetic intellectual Mm -hmm. understanding of salvation that was overemphasized at the expense of the full humanity in the incarnation being taken on in the person of Christ. I think his thought is very sophisticated and intellectual, 
and and it has a lot of touching points with the culture of his time but at the end of the day yes it requires an orthodox response so yeah, brad right what was yeah. the orthodox response given to it in apollinarius's own day all right well so gregory nanzian he's writing this is uh his letter 101 uh, it's incredibly famous, and I would just commend it to the readers, I mean, the, the listeners, just to go get, go on Amazon and get a copy. It's a little book. It's really pretty, actually. It's a cool-looking book. Uh, it's called On God in Christ, and it's got some, some great little speeches in there, but also these letters at the end. You know, spend a couple weeks working your way through it, and you'd, I'm sure you'll be edified, because to the extent that we're ever helpful or uh, right in these podcasts, it's because we're uh, subconsciously and sometimes even explicitly drawing on the insights of men like him. So uh, this is what he says. He says, uh, whoever has set his hope on a human being without a mind, um, and he's referring to Christ uh, in the Apollinarian view, is actually mindless himself and unworthy of being saved in his entirety. And this is key. The unassumed is the unhealed, but what is united with God is also being saved. Had half of Adam fallen, what was assumed and is being saved would have been half too. But if the whole fell... He is united to the whole of what was born and is being saved wholly. They are not then to begrudge us our entire salvation or to fit out a Savior with only bones and sinews and the picture of a human being. If the human being is without a soul, why that is what the Arians say too, intending to apply the suffering to the Godhead, the mover of the body also being the sufferer. But if he has a soul, if he has no mental consciousness, can he truly be human? So the issue that Gregory's getting at is is what we've been talking about. The fact that if if Jesus isn't to be understood in the orthodox way as fully God, fully man, but only a, a human body with a divine mind or soul, then the human mind and soul has not been assumed and has therefore not been healed. And that's an issue because, as Jesus points out time and time again in the Gospels, the true problem of sinfulness is not just what we do with our bodies— but it's what happens internally. He says we speak evil things because our hearts are filled with evil things. And he says, you've heard it said you shouldn't murder. But he says, even if you have anger in your heart, you're guilty of murder. You shouldn't commit adultery. But even if you have lust for a woman, you've committed adultery. Uh, the real problem of human sinfulness is that we have an evil heart that moves our, our bodies. So, so, yeah, that's the orthodox response. Uh, that's the orthodox critique of the Apollinarian view. He says, we do not part the human being from the Godhead. No, we affirm and teach one and the same God and Son. At first, not man, but alone and pre-eternal, unmixed with body and all that belongs to the body. So we might think of like John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, like we just celebrated a few weeks ago, the pre-incarnate Son of God, the eternal Logos, has always been. But, he says, finally, human being too assumed for our salvation, the same passable in flesh, impassable in Godhead, bounded in body, boundless in spirit, earthly and heavenly, visible and known spiritually, finite and infinite, so that by the same, whole man and God, the whole human being, fallen under sin, might be fashioned anew. That's really good. Here's what I want to highlight for listeners is there's a conundrum, there's a mystery. The New Testament speaks it. It doesn't fully spell it out for us. And as orthodoxy is developed in the centuries and formalized in councils and creeds, there are heretical understandings of Christ which are emphasizing either the divine nature or the human nature at the expense of the other. 
And it seems like the orthodox response is to affirm fully both. And so we don't try and explain the mystery away. We just affirm it and we worship it. Embrace the mystery. And we, yeah. And uh, that's a good name for a band. (laughs) As opposed to skin suit. Yes. For those that didn't know, but are familiar with the popular band Mute Math, some of the members of that band were previously in another band called Skin Suit, and I don't wonder if they were Apollinarian in their Christology because of this. I think it's in the liner note to the first album. <laughs> <laughs> if so, anybody um, were to write a rock song about <laughs> Apollinarianism, I would like skin to know suit. about it. Yes. What I find interesting from the letter of Gregory that was just read by Brad is how that was same that same language then is gets caught up and used in the symbol of Chalcedon. And so here here's an example of what I'm saying of the Orthodox response is to affirm both and to embrace both. And the symbol of Chalcedon is the, the Chalcedon Creed. Yes, the right. Chalcedonian yeah. Creed. And it's 451 AD, and so this is, you know, 70 years or so after the life of Gregory and Apollinaris. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable or rational soul and body. So there's the Apollinarian clause. He is not wanting to have the soul and mind of the human, just the body. And here is an explicit affirmation of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial or coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. So there's the affirmation of both. In all things like unto us without sin. So there's the important note, Hebrews 4, and what we were discussing earlier. But he assumes everything of humanity so that he can redeem all of humanity, but he does not have sin. Begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God. That's a specific phrase from Gregory's letter 101. According to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. So you see there in a very compact way the orthodox response that is uh, given in Gregory's letter in partial form, the concern for the full salvation of humanity requiring the full assumption of human nature, body, soul, mind, uh, so that all of it can be fully redeemed and this desire to affirm both. So we're not going to, we're not going to explain the mystery to the point where we have explained it away because we can't, but we're also not going to hide from 
what are apparent contradictions. We're going to fully affirm, yes, fully man and fully God. Two natures joined inseparably, unconfused, unmixed in one person. And that's what is, it certainly doesn't conflict with the New Testament. We would say that's the implications of the incarnation. And that's what you have to articulate if you're going to remain orthodox. And there's a thousand ways to go wrong in Mm -hmm. emphasizing one nature at the expense of the other. Maybe that's one reason we need narratives in the New Testament. Mm. Um, Because sometimes narratives help us live into that mystery. Um, You mentioned how the Gospels, you know, show us the humanity of Jesus uh, a little while ago. And one of my favorite places to take people is in Matthew 16. Um, And it's easy to miss uh, because you got Jesus, they and it's the disciples show up in Caesarea Philippi. Who do you say that I am? And Peter comes along and says, "You're the Messiah, the Son of the Living God." And we hear that Son of God, Jesus is divine. End of story, right? But then what follows really stands to amplify his humanity, uh, because you've got Peter affirming that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus stands up and says, now let me tell you what that means. It means that I'm going to suffer and die and be raised. And what's Peter's response? Never. Forget that. Let me, let me, let me tell you what messiahs do, right? Um, because Peter's thinking about Maccabean kind of messiahs, right? Where mm-hmm. you, you come in and you get up a posse and you show up in Jerusalem with swords and spears and you run the pagan oppressors out and you cleanse the temple and you fight the battle and you win the day. And if you die on a cross, it doesn't mean you're the Messiah. It means you're not the Messiah because you haven't rescued the people of God. And so here's Peter taking Jesus aside and rebuking him saying, God forbid it. You're not going to be killed at the hands of the Romans or anyone else. You know what messiahs are supposed to do. It's time to get our swords if you're the Messiah, if you're the Christ. And Jesus turns to Peter and uses the strongest language he uses to another human being in the Gospels. When he calls Peter, basically says, get behind me, Satan. Mm -hmm. You're not thinking like God. You're thinking like a person. And I'm inclined to think that in that narrative, Jesus responds to Peter because the temptation to do the messianic vocation the way everyone else has done it is so real. Mm. It would be far more glorious from history's perspective and from his peers' perspective to get a horse and a sword and go riding into Jerusalem, even if you die trying, right, than it is going to be to take up a cross and be beaten to death. To add to that, he would not have lost because this was the very temptation he was given at the yeah, beginning of right, his ministry. Right, right. It so would it, have been a yeah, victory. It would have been handed to yeah, mm-hmm. so even more so. So here's Jesus. He's just been called son of the living God, and yet he's in this moment where he has to deny himself and commit to the cross. And so after that moment where he sort of enthusiastically rebukes Peter out of that frustration or temptation or that 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 angst you know you get a sense of this deep turmoil that Jesus is experiencing in Matthew 16 23 and then you can almost feel him take a breath and gather the disciples in verse 24 and he says 
if anyone will become my followers, let them deny themselves mm-hmm. and take up their cross and follow me. Mm-hmm. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. And there's this moment where fully human Jesus of Nazareth commits himself mm-hmm. uh, to a messianic vocation that no one's ever conceived of before. Mm-hmm. And he does it for the salvation of the world. Yeah, and, and according to Paul in Philippians 2, it's through this self-emptying, this uh, obedience, even to the point of death, that gives him the name that's above every name. It's, it's on that act of obedience that the Father bestows on him the name at which every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So it, it like you're saying, Matt, in God's perfect plan, through his obedience and his willing willingness to suffer, he, he gets the glory, you know? Yeah, and the Jesus who takes up the cross— is the one is the Jesus who defines full human life. I think one of the big so what applications of this whole series and this conversation in particular is present right here, and that's a beautiful passage from Matthew 16. Thank you for bringing it up, Matt. And the juxtaposition between living God and uh, going to the cross is striking, and obviously upset the messianic expectations of of his followers. But I think, so the so what application I'm thinking of here is the ever-present danger of accommodation, of taking the truth of God as it's given to us through Christ, through Scripture, through the tradition, and accommodating it to the cultural expectations or whatever the popular thought of the day is. We see even the... Hebraic or the Jewish understanding of the Messiah required correction in the first century when Jesus came. It was those who knew their Bibles best that crucified Jesus, that condemned him for blasphemy, and they didn't understand the suffering servant role of the Messiah as it's presented in the Old Testament. And so Peter's understanding needed correction, and the Jews of the day's understanding needed correction. And there was that danger to accommodate what you were saying, the, the Maccabean revolt, this this first century Jewish expectation of what the Messiah would do, delivering the Jews from Roman oppression through a military revolution. And that was the satanic temptation to accommodate your mission to the popular understanding or the cultural expectations. We see it with Apollinaris, this desire to accommodate the truth of the incarnation to popular Greek thought or Hellenistic thinking or, you know, how can we, and there's a missionary impulse there. And so you see this as the gospel moves cross-culturally, there's, you know, the ongoing discussion of what is culturally relative. You know, people in the East don't need to dress like Victorians. That's culturally relative. But what, what about the gospel cannot be accommodated? And that, I think, is such a temptation to and requires resisting to say no we're not going to explain away the mystery we're going to affirm both we're going to affirm uh, that the son of the living god came to die on a cross and we accept then if you make that decision you accept being foolish or scandalous based on who your audience is just like the gospel was declared to be in first corinthians by paul foolishness to the greeks that the divine life could perish and die on a cross and a scandal to Jews that God would take on flesh and and die in that way under a, you know, a Gentile ruler. So what? To revisit the question, why should we care about Apollinarianism? 
This heresy, while it attempted to create touching points between the gospel and Greek culture and philosophy, ultimately denigrates the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It necessarily teaches that while Christ's body was human and died for humanity, Christ's mind was divine and consequently did not die for humanity. That being the case, then there was some portion of Christ that was not fully human and consequently not redeemed in the resurrection. Time and again during this series, we have discovered that our attempts in contextualizing the person and work of Christ to various cultures and times can sometimes get us into tricky situations. While Apollinaris' motivation was doubtless pure, his attempt to create a touching point of Greek culture between the gospel created an unbiblical picture of the Lord Jesus Christ.